Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on August 20th, 2019 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was roommates. All right, well, we really look forward to hearing all of your stories tonight. Um, but before we get started, I'd like to introduce our special guest host for the evening, Matt Cecil. Um, so anyway, so I, uh, just to start off, I'll tell you, I've, I've had a lot of roommates. Um, but I recently was, I was up at my mom's house uh, in Vermont, uh, and I was actually hanging out with a couple of my roommates from college uh, this late in the game. I think, you know, we've been out like 30 years or whatever, or it feels like it anyway. Um, and so we're hanging out with our kids and the wives and the girlfriends and all this other stuff. And pretty much everybody had been to college together. Two, two of the guys that were there were um, fraternity brothers of mine. Um, and, and one of the other wives, my wife went to college with me and one of the other wives was basically there every weekend because they were, you know, my other friend was dating at the time. But my one friend, Adam, who I've actually talked about a couple of times in stories, um, he, his girlfriend didn't go to the same college. And you know how that's always kind of weird like when there's that one person and you're like, oh my God, remember that? And they're like, no. Yeah, so what we like to do in that case, and a lot of times it ends up being my friend Adam's uh, girlfriend, Wendy, um, is we like to tell her like really awful stories about Adam. Um, it's just fun. Um, he's kind of like a shy person, and so it just makes it even more fun. Um, but anyway, this one's kind of half and half. So we were talking about freshman roommates, um, and what was really interesting was is my freshman year in college was actually my fifth year in a dorm. I went to a boarding school, actually. I got shipped off. Um, and it was an all-male boarding school, um, and it was very structured and, and kind of snooty and all that kind of stuff. Um, so when I, I, I knew well enough when the, the forms came home to grab the sheet that has all the preferences and stuff on it. So I grabbed the roommate one really quick, the, the, the dorm one, and I checked off um, a single because I'd, been, I'd had roommates forever, and I just was like, I'm done. I want a single. I went to an all-male high school, so I was like, co-ed? And at the time, and I think there's children here, don't do this, um, I smoked. And so I was like, smoker, because you could back then. Like, it, I was 18, so you could, they couldn't keep you from smoking in your room and stuff like that. Um, so I checked all those boxes. Those were my top preferences. Um, so I show up to school, and I am not only not in a single, I'm in a suite. So there's three rooms, two people, two little tiny bedrooms and a common room. So it's on an all-male floor. It's a suite with three other people, and when I get there and all the parents leave, my parents left immediately because they were like, yeah, another school, see ya. Um, like, when they, everybody left, I was, like, I was like, hey, so everybody's a smoker, right? You know, and they're all like, well, no. And I was like, oh, so they don't look at those sheets at all, apparently, so that's nice. Um, so I had, <laughs> my one roommate was uh, very good looking, so my mom said, stick with him. Um, you'll at least get whatever. Um, and then there was, this, there was two other rooms, uh, and one of the other kid was named Matt as well. There was five mats on my hall out of 32 people. Um, so so we, we, we called him Matt, but we all ended up going by our last names after about a week. And then there was this other kid, and I'll, I'll, I'll say his name is Jared, just for the story. Um, and you could just tell it was just not going to go well. You ever have that roommate where, like, you get to college, and you just, you're like... 
I'm pretty sure this is not going to go well at all. Like five minutes into it, he um, was uh, very full of himself. Um, I just got to school with a lot of very intelligent people, and he told me right off the bat that he was going pre-med, and he was an EMT, and he was going to be a doctor, and it was, it was like one, two, three, done. And he was like... Whew. And, um, and the kid was unbelievably annoying. And he's like, I'm allergic to cigarette smoke, so if you even smell like it, I'm gonna be mad. And I was like, oh, whatever. And um, so right off the bat, it was not good. Like first night, I'm meeting all these other people. Um, you know, like a lot of times when you tell stuff about college, it's a lot of times it's your roommates and stuff are kind of like your first friends, and then maybe you meet other people and stuff like that. Um, so I went out with everybody but Jared. Um, and another kid, uh, this is my friend Nick, um, who was, had the same last uh, letter in our last name, so we were in a, the, the same groups together to start off the uh, freshman orientation stuff. So, so we go out, and I won't name the college either. Um, we, we, there's 2,100 students, and there was 17 fraternities. Um, it was kind of a drinking school. Um, <laughs> And it was trimester, so basically you mostly take classes Monday, Wednesday, Friday, so that made Monday a drinking night, Wednesday a drinking night, our fraternity had beer on Thursday, Friday, and then no one went out on the weekends because you were just done at that point, and you had to get some sort of work done. So we go out, freshman orientation, so the, the fraternities are all like, come on, ladies, gentlemen, whatever, and so we go out, and we are just absolutely hammered. And we're walking home, and there's a whole bunch of different dorms, and um, we're walking kind of across like the quad kind of area, and there's this big wide open field um, in front of one of the dorms, and there's a kid totally like full on passed out uh, right in front of the dorm, like just on the ground, like mumbling and stuff. And so my friend Nick and I were like, hey, dude, you gotta get up, you know, like, um, where do you live? And he goes, um, it was right in front of West Dorm. There was West, and there was South, and there was Davidson, and some other things. And he goes, um, I live in Westfield. And we're like, oh, no, dude, this is like, this is like a field in front of a, a dorm. Nobody lives here. Um, this isn't like, you know, and, he's, and we're like, where do you live? And he goes, I live in Westfield. And we're like, no, I, I don't think you understand. Like, um, like, this is like, you can't sleep outside here. Like, I'm pretty, we're new, all new, but I'm pretty sure that's not cool. Um, and so he's like, no, I live, I live in Westfield, Westfield. And we're like, what's your name? And he said, my name is Adam. So this is the first five minutes of school I've already met one of my best friends. And so we help Adam up. And one of the reasons that it kind of was important was, and this is one of the things I remember, Adam lived in a completely different dorm than us. Um, one of the things that was kind of important was he didn't have a roommate. He was in a single. So we kind of thought, like, well, if no one had found this kid, like, no one would have reported him missing or anything like that. So we get him up to his room, and he's like, no, I got a single. We're not waking anybody up. I got a single. And so we put him in his room, and I'm like, it's co-ed floor, right? And he's like, yeah. Single? Yeah. You smoke? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Good for you. Good for you. Um, so as it goes on, so we told Wendy this story, and she was very impressed um, by her very successful boyfriend, um, and who later became like, he's like a like crazy engineer. Um, so anyway, so, so I'm <laughs> like, basically we're telling this story, and, um, and I'm like, man, I, I, I like, I, I envied you so much for having that single like that. That must have been great, that whole freshman year. Because then we ended up living in the fraternity, you know, and that's just a whole to-do. Um, and he goes, yeah, it was cool for like two weeks. Um, and then they moved somebody into my room. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I was like, who, who got 
how did I not know who got moved into your room? And he's like, oh, the guy was such a jerk. Um, totally thought he was going like pre-med. Um, and he was such an a-hole like all the time. I don't even think he, he failed out at the end of the year. And I said, what was his name? <laughs> he goes, Jared. <laughs> he moved out of my room and into Adam's room and ruined his single on a co-ed floor smoking like I had always wanted. <laughs> Dreams. All right, well, that's my roommate story. I have a lot of them, but... So what we're going to do is we're going to grab the first name out of the basket. Um, Amy Polakoff? There you go. How's that? Stras vi Betty Samuelovna, kank vi pozhovayesha. Do any of you speak Russian? If you do, excuse that. But that's what I learned when my parents dropped me off at some socialist communist camp in 1966 when I was, I think, nine years old. <laughs> and Betty, Betty Samovilovna, was Betty, daughter of Sam, who was the director of the camp. Sam was the director of the camp. And I was put in this dorm and my parents went away. They went away for six weeks to Europe, which was why I was at camp for the first time in my life. And they said, well, you'll be fine. Your sister, your older sister's there, and other friends from our town of New Jersey. And I was not fine. I was miserable. I was homesick. And my sister was busy. She was like 13, and she was painting flowers on her navel, literally, <laughs> and really didn't want to be bothered at all with her younger sister. So I was what you'd call a nebbish, and I was very insecure. And I was in this dorm with my roommates, and they decided that I was going to be the runt of the cabin. And so every day, there was at noontime or whenever af after lunch, we could have snack and candy, usually, that we got from the canteen and they would take my candy. <laughs> and I would lie on my bunk facing the wall while they ate my candy <laughs> and said really mean things about me. And it was horrible, and I was really homesick. And I wrote a letter to my mother. I don't know how she got it, but she got it. She still, my mom today is 96, and she still tells me this story, how she was in a hotel in Paris in the elevator, and she opened this letter. And my sister had tried to keep me from writing the letter because <laughs> she didn't want my parents to be upset. But somehow my mom got the letter, and it said you know, how miserable I was and what I was going through every single day in this cabin. And Betty was the leader of the cabin, the daughter of the director. So not, you know, I couldn't, I don't know why I didn't talk to somebody. Maybe I did, but I don't know why. Anyway, so I'm in, my mom reads the letter, and she's crying in the elevator, she tells me. And after five weeks, they came back. And I was like, oh my god, they're going to take me out of camp. But being the good liberal parents they were, they wouldn't because they thought I'd feel like a failure. So I had to stay in the 
camp for a whole nother week. And I was begging them when they came and, and they came and they, we went to different classes or whatever we were and there I was learning Russian at this camp. I knew how to say, uh, what is it? At the kniga, it's a pen. At the stol, <laughs> it's a table. At the stool, it's a, it's a chair. At the gazeta, I mean, I still remember this. <laughs> it's a newspaper. <laughs> anyway, they did not take me out of the camp. And um, I had to stay there for a whole nother week. But somehow, Betty, daughter of Sam, decided that I was no longer going to be the runt of the cabin. And instead, they picked another girl. And I was beside myself. I really didn't know what to do. And um, she was an African-American girl, probably the only one at the camp. But um, so they started picking on her. And I didn't join in. Thank you. Oh, welcome to the stage. Second time mosquito storyteller, Gary Longtine. Longtine, Longtine. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Gary Longtine, as she said. She didn't lie. And uh, I uh, want to tell you first that I am very pleased to be here. I really am, and I'm thankful for this exercise. Uh, I am in the middle of writing a book, uh, and this is all excerpts from the book that I'm doing on uh, Mosquito Slam. And uh, since this is about roommates, I'm going to tell you about uh, a friend of mine that I went to school with uh, in prep school, and he made up this trip. He worked for four summers gro uh, bagging groceries uh, to save up money for a trip that he uh, planned uh, when we graduated. And I guess the fellow, the young man that he was going to go with, backed out at the last minute, so he came up to me and said, look, would you consider going on this trip with me? I don't know if your parents got you your, your graduation gift or not. And I said, I don't know. Let's find out. So he handed me this book, which was uh, four months in Europe, 17 countries on a motorcycle. <laughs> so I brought it home to my father and mother, and they read it. And within the first five minutes, my dad said, you can't not do this. This is the most incredible itinerary I've ever seen. You've got to do it. It's better than going to college. So uh, fortunately, he, they allowed me to go. And uh, four weeks into the trip, uh, we ended up in a t little town in France near the Mediterranean uh, called Grasse. I don't know how many people know gr about Grasse or what it is, but it's a French town where actually all of the perfume that any major designer uh, designs is made in Grasse. And it's a factory. And you can go there and pick out your scents and even let people like us go in and do that. And you can pick your own scent and uh, name it after you, and they give you a bottle of it. And then you can order it if you want. So anyway, so my roommate and I uh, were coming from uh, Paris, and we got down to uh, this grass. And we decided that the next day we would go to the factory and uh, order our potion. So we did. And uh, we checked into the hotel, which didn't allow food, but we happened it just happened that uh, we got some cheese and some wine and some pears and brought it up inside of our suitcases. 
And my roommate jumped into the shower first, and I went out to our little deck that overlooked the front of the hotel, and I uh, cut up the pears, and I cut up the cheese, and I tore a piece of the bread. I also bought milk because I'm a, I was a, a big milk drinker. So I don't know if you know, but in, they have Dulé, and it's in a sort of a carton, but it's shaped like what we have our creamery that they do in the United States, that you flip off the top. So I got this carton, and I went out onto the balcony, and I take it, and I can't open it, so I'm taking my teeth, and, I get, and it flips and falls down and hits a man having dinner with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I immediately turned around, jumped at the door in the bathroom and said, look, Brad, you've been in there too long. I need to get in there. So he comes out with a towel around him, and I go into the bathroom, and I lock the door. And I turned that shower on, and I turned the lights off so I wouldn't be there. And I'm in the shower, showering, and I hear these people screaming in French. They're knocking at the door. English. They open the door, uh, and Brad's discussing. He, of course, he doesn't know what the hell happened. And so he's discussing it with them, and he said, well, just a minute. And of course, you figure that he came to the bathroom door, and he kept knocking, and I pretended I didn't hear. But ultimately, I had to open the door, and I pretended First of all, I didn't pretend because I didn't speak French, but I also pretended I was deaf and dumb. So <laughs> I went over, what, you know, I, this is about the most I said. So he told me what was going on. The hotel people told me what was going on. So I whispered in his ear, I will pay for the cleaning of her clothes and his clothes. But what it did is it hit him and bounced off and landed in her lap. So. Anyway, so I, I did that, and uh, uh, we went on, to, on. We continued on the trip, but before we left, I, he came to me and said, "Why didn't you tell me? You jumped." In. I said, "Well, I thought you could handle it. I thought you could handle this." Uh, obviously, he couldn't. So anyway, the trip was designed for us to, as I say, every day was clearly specified specifically what we were going to do. We left there. And we went to uh, uh, Cannes and uh, the Carlton Hotel. And we had an arrangement on this trip. And I said, well, the one thing I will do, Brad, is I know that we have uh, uh, seven days in a week. And one of those days, I want to be able to stay in a top-rate hotel. I'm willing to stay in youth hostels. I'm willing to stay in Zimmer Freeze. I'm, I'm willing to you know, sleep in camps but I'm not interested in, I have to remember what it's like to be in luxury and not be traveling like a vagabond, which we are. So we did, and we checked into the Carlton Hotel in Nice, which, if any of you remember, was the hotel that Cary Grant and Grace Kelly uh, in their movie, To Catch a Thief, stayed. And so if you know I'm not making it up, this is, uh, these are pictures of me. This was Khan. This is across from the hotel, the Carlton Hotel, which I'm sure some of you must recognize from the, from the, from the movie. And, uh, oh, <laughs> this is a picture of me the day I, <laughs> first of all, back in the 60s, Arthur Frome told you that you could go to Europe on $5 a day, okay? <laughs> So I had $3,000 on the trip, 
and I called home three times for $3,000 because, and I called my dad and I said, look, you know, it isn't as cheap as they say. <laughs> so it was difficult for me. Uh, but this is me the day I arrived. I had worn a suit and it was Icelandic Airlines and we landed in Liechtenstein. And when that happened, uh, I went with, because that time you traveled with a suit. I took my suit off and I went into the men's room and changed into this. And this was our first ride we got when we thumbed. This is all hay in the back. We were sitting in it. So then we go, and uh, again, yeah, we, go to the, we end up at the Carlton Hotel seven days later, which is my way to see Europe. However, I have to say this trip was an amazing experience, and if you want to know more about it, you got to buy my book. <laughs> uh, Dick McCormick? But the only way you can tell a story in five minutes is you got to like when you're watch when you're watching a TV show it's like previously on. So all you need to know on previously on is that the core of the story is actually true. Well, I'm going to tell it in a way where you, maybe you can really feel what it was like. But the previously on was that I led a tumultuous childhood. You can probably tell that by looking at me. <laughs> My mother played bar piano. That's true, too. And this story happens when I was about 12 years old. But until I was seven years old, I had an imaginary friend. And he was my roommate almost every night. So everybody has imaginary friends, right? Yeah, see, she did. Um, some people don't admit it, though. That's all. So, so this story starts. We had been evicted, This is not unusual, but we had been evicted, and my sister, my older sister and myself were left at my brother's to stay at my brother with his baby and his pregnant wife, and my mother and father and my other sister went to other relatives. So I was at my brother's, and my sister and I were going to sleep in what was sort of like a rec room. Not really, but sort of like a rec room. But, you know, and I said I had an imaginary friend until I was seven. That's true. And he, he left. <laughs> true. He did. So, but I still, at night sometimes, would have imaginary friends. You know, it would be famous people like Mickey Mantle and Dwight Eisenhower. Well, I'm 74 years old. I mean, China. <laughs> yeah, not now. You know, two days, right? So... So anyway, and, and you know, and I would they, would, they would be good for me. All right. So, so here I am uh, in, the, in this room, and but I'm with my sister, so I'm not in this room alone. And so the first thing you have to do in a case like that is have an imaginary room. And so, okay, so I, I didn't really do it this way then, but I'll do it now so you can appreciate it. So first of all, you have to build an imaginary wall. And then an imaginary door works, okay? And another imaginary wall, and then an imaginary wall over here with a window. It's a basement window, and I was very short at the time, okay? <laughs> and so this, this night, I, I'd, I'd liked the house we were in a lot, and we had been there a relatively long time. 
So it was difficult. And for this night, I had, for the first time, a different imaginary friend that I've had from other times, other times since then. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about this friend. And, oh, wait a minute. What do you want, Mom? Oh, geez, no, I'm shy. I can't do it the way you would do it. I can't do it that way. I know, I know what you said a hundred times. It's not, it's pizzazz, not pitch. Okay, okay, I'll try it. Okay, so I have to tell you it this way. So the imaginary friend, the person I really wanted to be with that night, was my mother. So I'm going to tell it your way. <clears throat> so as long as I live, I'll never forget the songs that my mother loved. And hopefully this will give you an idea of the song will give you an idea of why I needed her that night. So it starts, it's an old Milton Berle song, for anybody remembers. At night when the family chores were all through, we'd gather around her and sing. No harm could befall us, for somehow we knew how safe we were under her wing. And now, as I pray, at the end of the day, an angel sings. <laughs> what now, Mom? No, 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 I can't do it. No, 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 I, I'm trying for that. I know. At the end of the story, you have to, at the end of the, 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 the time, you have to leave the audience with a lot of pizzazz. Okay, I'll try to do it your way. <sighs> so, at the end, and so, um, I'm going to start talking. I don't to start now. What now, Mom? Okay, okay. <laughs> I know. So, so you had to have an imaginary chart. imaginary $5 bill, just so you'll get the idea. We don't want pennies. We don't want pennies. <laughs> so, satisfied? A roommate sings from above songs my mother loved. Songs my mother loved. Okay, please welcome to the stage uh, Oliver Anderson. Oliver. I live in Brooklyn, so my story probably should involve roommate being roommates with some of your kids. But <laughs> No, my, my story is about a roommate I had at a hostel in Berlin called The Generator when I was 18. Now, when I was 18, I took basically all the money I'd saved up, and I decided that I wanted to backpack through Europe because I thought that that's what you did at 18. Having now seen what an 18-year-old actually looks like Realizing that's probably something you do much later in life, I'm really astounded that my parents allowed me to do this <laughs> whole thing. But 
I found myself at the Generator in East Berlin, which to set the stage is essentially a giant post-industrial 10-story building in the middle of seven parking lots that uh, basically is just filled, you know, has a glowing neon bar and just tiny rooms stacked as far as it can go, and it was the best deal that I could find. So I show up in East Berlin, and uh, you check in, and you meet your roommates. I didn't pick them, like some people got to pick them, but I show up, and it's uh, three girls from California and two very strange Spanish people who, it's a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and they both are basically huddling on the bottom bunk, um, just sort of muttering to each other and not making eye contact with people. And it doesn't bode well, but a couple days go by, and you sort of, you come in late at night, and they're still sort of huddled in a corner somewhere, and, you know, you go about your business. Until the final night, I came back, and they seemed to be, the mood had shifted. I walked in, and the three girls from California were not, you know, placed around the room, reading in their beds as they normally would be, as you would expect. They were all grouped together on top of one bunk bed in the far, far corner, <laughs> making direct eye contact with me. A child who has just showed up to uh, basically the two, the, the boyfriend and the girlfriend had appeared had taken some drugs or something and were not having the, the best time of it. The girlfriend was muttering, uh, por favor, help me, who am I? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and the boyfriend was on the other side of the room desperately talking into a cell phone in Spanish. So things weren't going great. Uh, and she just became more and more perturbed and became more and more anxious. And so we, you know, being the good Samaritans that we are, thought that, like, you know what? Let's go down. Maybe somebody here at this hotel in the middle of a parking lot in East Berlin would like to take responsibility for this young woman. <laughs> so we went down to the front desk to the 19-year-old German person, uh, and we said, hey, we really think that there is a um, social services issue that could use your intervention. Maybe you would like to intervene. And his response was, would you like some beers? Like, I don't know, like, maybe we can have some beers. So we had the beers, and we went back up to the room to see what had, what had changed. And, I don't think space helped the situation because now she was really pacing around the room. Por favor, help me, I don't know who I am. Please, can anybody help me? Who is this? So it was getting really bad and she started grabbing suitcases and throwing them out the window. Throwing people's clothes and everything out the window. We're on the seventh floor, it's a very tall building and so suddenly the trees are being decorated with are extremely dirty short cargo shorts and t-shirts and things and um, and so we thought this situation has really become extremely provocative maybe the 19 year old at the front desk would like to intervene again so we went back down we said you know I really think you should call somebody maybe there's a who runs the hotel maybe we can call a paramedic um, and he said all right all right all right we'll, we'll call a paramedic 
would you guys like some rum? <laughs> so after we drank the rum, uh, we went back upstairs to check on the situation. And you know, all, all of our belongings had been cast out into the night. And she seemed to become more and more agitated. And at this point, she decided to pull down her pants and take a shit in the middle of the room. <laughs> so things weren't going great. I mean, it wasn't good. So we, uh, we went back downstairs and we said, okay, we really need the paramedics to show up. And he said, absolutely, have some rum. We haven't finished any. So we show up and um, the paramedics, uh, so we, we hang out in the lobby and the paramedics come in and we all go up and the paramedics, these nice German people who really don't want to be here dealing with you know, these tourist problems, uh, they take one step into the room, and they look at the situation, and they just sort of go like, no, yeah, no. <laughs> and, and they step right back outside of the room. So we're just in the hallway, like, okay, I guess we'll just let, let this take its course? I don't know, what's the, so, um, one, luckily one of, the, one of the girls who wanted to be a, uh, she wanted, she was studying social work or something. She went in, she talked to her, she calmed her down, got some pants on her. <laughs> and, and, the, and the paramedics, they finally, they entered, the coast was clear, they entered, and they just, you know, slightly touching her, you know, sort of escorted her to the elevator. And, and as, we, as we got down to the, um, to the parking lot, uh, she, saw the ambulance and she saw the six parking lots and she decided to make a break for it. And she sprinted off and you see these two paramedics, German paramedics, you go, okay, well, I guess this is where we get our paycheck. And they run after her into the night and tackle her and get her into the ambulance. And we finished the bottle of rum and the sun was rising and it was my time to leave Germany and to go to, on to my next stop, which was Krakow, Poland. And I didn't, I didn't have anything. I had, you know, a uh, passport and some money and the clothes on my back. Um, and I was 18 alone, but I had just, I'd, I'd lost everything. So I s entered the trip basically a, a new person. So there you go. Thank you. Steve, come on down. Uh, when I when I turned 80, um, I lost my roommate of 58 years, um, and she and I married when we were seniors at university. Uh, we met when we were 15 years old, and. Uh, She had dementia the last several years of her life, and <clears throat> she loved the moth story hour. And we came to the mosquito a couple of times. And she kept saying, I can't remember much anymore, but I really want to get up and tell this story. And then she would tell me the story. So I decided tonight I'd, uh, I'd do it for her. Um, <laughs> So, 
Anyway, we met when we were 15 years old, and being 15 years old, going to high school together in Melrose, Massachusetts, um, we discovered that there was something beyond kissing that was really wonderful. And uh, at age 15, we really thought that, uh, that we were in love with each other. And in fact, we were. When we were 16, we started to apply to universities to go to university. And um, one day, Denny got a, uh, her name was Denise, and I called her Denny. One day, Denny got a message from the high school principal that he would like to talk with her. Well, immediately she began to suspect that the high school principal had found out that we were, um, we were intimate. And she had never been called to the principal's office in her life. So she went there with fear and trembling. He had been a teacher in the system for years before and had been her mother's high school chemistry teacher. And he began by saying, well, Denise, uh, you've been applying to colleges. Now, I know your mother and father, and, and I'm sure they'll be happy to know that yeah, your applications are all in. But you've applied to schools that um, probably are a reach for you. Uh, perhaps you should consider putting in a couple other applications. And she said, well, I know where I want to go to school, but my dad will only let me apply to Wellesley and Smith and Radcliffe and Mount Holyoke, and I don't want to go to any of those schools. And he, he said, well, the principal said, well, tell me, what do you really want to do in terms of university? She said, I'd like to go to nursing school, but my dad won't let me. So he said to her, well, if he won't let you, I've got a solution that might appeal to you. There's a school in Medford, which is only about six miles away from where we'd grown up, school in Medford that has an association with the Bouvet School in Boston, and you can be an undergraduate, take a liberal arts course, and... Uh, get a nursing certificate at the end. She thought that might be interesting. He said, oh, and by the way, Steve Jacobson just got accepted early decision at Tufts. So you might consider putting, <laughs> putting in an application to Jackson College, uh, which he did. And so the two of us at age 18 merrily went on our way uh, to Medford, Massachusetts, and in 1960, we got married, and we were married for 58 years. She always told me that she'd like to get up on stage and tell that story, because it meant a lot to her. Uh, so I've told it for her. That's it. Okay, welcome to the stage, Bernard. Bernard!
Good evening, everybody. Just imagine this, 1983, New York City. A, um, I'm a 23-year-old man coming from Munich, working my first job in the big city. And uh, I'm very lucky. I, um, I have a friend who has a big loft in New York, uh, close to Canal Street, 1,600 square feet, and it's practically empty, just a kitchen, and uh, I have a roommate, of course. He's also German. Uh, he's actually a friend of my brother. I know him a little bit. We have um, the ninth floor loft east, and this is important for the story later on. And um, we have a problem with our lock once in a time, once in a while. You know these New York City or New York City police locks which bolt all over and the keyhole is in the center and uh, sometimes this lock did not work and sometimes it worked. There was another lock which we didn't use or we were not supposed to use because there were two key chains and only one had the key for the second lock. So um, I had uh, been in New York the year before and had spent some time in the hospital and I had keep contact with one of these nurses which were attending and uh, so I came back to New York and I called her up and we met and eventually I invited her for dinner and I was uh, willing and able to cook dinner in our place. So my roommate at that time, um, he had something else going on and uh, uh, I was out doing my grocery shoppings and, uh, uh, and he had left after I left. And uh, when I got back with all my grocery bags, I couldn't get into the apartment. I tried everything and sweat, it was summer, sweat was running down anyway, everywhere, and I tried, I tried, I couldn't get this lock to work. And I thought, oh my God, I had of course not the money to call a locksmith or anything like that. So on the sixth floor, I, I, I had a friend living on the sixth floor. So I went because I thought, hmm, Maybe I can get through the fire escape into the back door or something like that. So anyway, I went and I rang her door and she wasn't there. So I, I thought, okay, just get to the seventh floor, you know. And actually there was a woman, I, I didn't really know her, and I told her, you know, the story and she kind of uh, hesitated, but eventually she let me on the fire escape. So. Ninth floor. I went from the seventh to the ninth floor. It was about 6.30 at night, and I think uh, my date was um, supposed to arrive at about eight or so. So it was, it was not super tight, but I definitely wanted to start cooking soon. And I didn't really know what I was going to do up there. So I went to the ninth floor on the fire escape, and there's a door, and there was no way to get in the door. But next to the door was a window, but the window was outside of the railing of the fire escape. So I don't know what got into me. I, I, went, I went later because this apartment or this loft is still 
uh, owned by my friend. I went back uh, a lot of times, and a couple of times I went back out there from the inside just to look down and thought, <laughs> my God. Anyway, so what, what can you do? The, the balustrade is about that high, and it was definitely too high for me to climb over it. So there was no other way. So I tried to pull the bars <laughs> apart just a tiny little bit. I mean, so I could squeeze through. I mean, still, ninth floor, okay? It was pretty, pretty deep down there. So, but I had to get inside somehow. So I was like cursing my friend because, well, he couldn't, you know, could have locked just one lock, but he locked both of the locks, and I had only key for one, and that lock didn't even work. So I was pretending to be Superman. I tried to stretch these bars, and eventually I got really, I got through, I squeezed myself through, and I made sure that my head would be going through <laughs> before I did the rest of my body. <laughs> So I went through, I was really, I was hanging, holding on with my left hand and uh, with my foot, and then I was kicking the window with my right foot, and it smashed, actually, and I kicked it again because there was more class, and it was around the time uh, when all these trolleys that were selling hot dogs and pretzels were moving back, and they were moved back. There was a storage in the basement of the building. So they all put and pushed their carts back, and of course, fall, class was falling down, and you know, and I was yelling down, it's, I, I live here, it's not a burglary, I live here, you know? <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse my French. Oh, my German. Uh, but anyway, I was totally scared that they would call the police. So I somehow managed to get in and uh, without major injuries. And I, I opened the lock, the door from the inside. I rushed down to the street to talk to these guys. They probably hardly understand my broken uh, English anyway. And they didn't really give a sh <laughs> And uh, so... There were a couple of pieces of glass down there, but nothing serious. So I rushed up again and started cooking. <laughs> and, um, well, the dinner went okay. I mean, nothing seriously happened, but because also the whole bedroom was full of glass because <laughs> that's <laughs> where the window I was broken, you know, and of course, most of the glass went inside and on the bed, so I, th this was not an option. <laughs> anyway, so when my roommate came back, of course, I w he, w he looked at the window, which I had taped up with plastic at the meantime, because, you know, it was drafty, uh, and he said, you know, what did you do? And I said, well, you know, uh, they only one key on my keychain is it? Oh, I'm so sorry, you know. And well, I'm really flabbergasted still today when I think about the story and before I told it today that, oh my God, how could you do that? You know, but I survived. Thank you. Mike D.
in parentheses, the worst roommate ever. So uh, yes, uh, I'm Mike D. I am uh, one of the worst roommates ever. If you've ever lived with me, uh, you know that. In fact, I've got a few of my former roommates are here tonight. And um, remarkably, my story today is about how uh, roommates who wait are worth the wait. So I was in Europe in the summer of 1998, a very hot summer, and we were backpacking through Europe, which seems to be a, a common theme. Um, I was also raised by wolves, which is another common theme here <laughs> as a roommate. And uh, we had really one goal in Europe, uh, although there was lots of cultural activities and museums and other things. Uh, our real goal when we were in Europe was to run with the bulls in Pamplona. <laughs> So that's, you know, mom and dad had given us money, uh, $3,000 uh, every week or whatever I heard from the previous uh, uh, storyteller. Sounds like a lot to me, but um, we, we had some money and we were not, we were staying in hostels the entire time, sleeping in the Gare du Nord uh, on the outskirts. Uh, and we were looking for a way to get to Pamplona. And so to get there, we took a tour through um, uh, London and we ended up in Italy and uh, I was in Rome, and I stayed there with my friend, and we were uh, on our way to um, eventually to leave Rome and get to Barcelona. And as we were leaving Rome, I realized that um, I'd left my passport at the Roman uh, hotel. Apparently, the Romans like to take your passports to make sure you don't steal their money or something. So <laughs> we, were, uh, we were looking for a train to get us to um, Barcelona. And... Uh, we got to the train station, and I saw the train conductor, and I said, you know, um, we're going to Barcelona because we need to get to Pamplona from Barcelona. I said, this is the train that's going to Barcelona, and the most rickety, old, rumbly train I've ever seen in my life, it looked like a New York subway train, rolled up, and I said, this is the fast train to Barcelona. <laughs> and the conductor said, si, si, Barcelona, si. Uh, so my friend and I... Um, we had been separated from our other roommates and we had decided, okay, great, we'll take the fast train to Barcelona from Rome. We got on this train and we began this kind of rumbly ride um, south, which I'm not sure that Barcelona is south of, uh, of Rome, but uh, at some point on that, on that train ride, um, <laughs> this guy in the train uh, looks up to us and he says, hey, you guys are Americans, right? We said, yeah. He said, what you going to Sicily for? <laughs> I said, um, we're, not, we're not going to Sicily. We're, we're going to Spain. He said, this train's going to Sicily. <laughs> uh, and um, it turns out um, there is a Barcelona, Sicily, uh, which we were rumbling slowly uh, on our way towards. Um, now, I, we never actually made it to Barcelona, Sicily. Obviously, we get off that train. Um, and uh, uh, in fact, some of my roommates who are here tonight claim that this is a made-up story because you can't actually take a train across the water. <laughs> so we've never figured out if there's actually a train, but, I, but like, maybe there was a, a ferry involved and the train route continued you know, the way highways do in America with Hawaii, you've been on a federal highway in Hawaii, you're like, how am I on this US highway? It's Hawaii, right? Just continues. So uh, anyway, so I got off that train, uh, we turned around, we got back to Rome, 
now it's time to really get, okay, now we really need to get to, Bar I mean, now we need to get the super fast train to Barcelona. Our friends, this is, you know, pre-cell phone era. Our friends, uh, we had a plan, which is a foolproof plan, that we would meet on Monday at noon in Barcelona. No problem. It was Saturday or something. Um, we could get there. And we, we were calling Roy's mother, uh, uh, Shula, and leaving her messages on her, uh, on her voice machine just to let her know, like, the update on this foolproof plan. So <clears throat> anyway, so Pamplona's the goal. Barcelona. We're now in Rome. We get our passports. We're heading. Uh, and it turns out there's no room on the train, the fast train to Barcelona, the true fast train to Barcelona. So I say to my friend um, Peleg, we're just going to get on that train. And we're going to sit in that dining car. And we're going to make friends with everyone in that dining car until the conductor or somebody throws us off. So we got on that train and we played a lot of cards. We bought a lot of drinks. And eventually that dining car closed around midnight, um, about, I don't know, six hours into that uh, train across Europe. And we were pulling into Lyon, and the, um, the train ticket, the Frenchman comes in and says, uh, <clears throat> ticket. And I look at him, and even though uh, je parle français un petit peu, I said, I don't speak any uh, French. Uh, and he said, ticket, please. We pull into Lyon. Slow down, I thought. We, if we get thrown off this train in Lyon, we'll never make it to, to, to Barcelona. We'll never make it to Pamplona. So the, the man uh, said tickets. I said, let's go see my bag. And we walked through 17 cars. <laughs> when we got to the last car, I looked at him. I said, no tickets. <laughs> he, he said, stupid American. <laughs> and he put down two strap-on-tan seats and said, uh, I will charge you the first-class fare for these seats to get to Barcelona. We got to Barcelona. We eventually made it to Pamplona. Uh, we, got, <clears throat> we got to the place where we were meeting our friends. Uh, I guess I will, I'll, I'll, I'll end with, we made it to Barcelona on the third day after our friends said they would meet us at noon in that square. <laughs> uh, I got there at noon on the third day we said we would meet. And uh, Roy showed up 10 minutes after noon. And I said, where have you guys been? <laughs> so. That's my story. Next to the stage, Marianne Thomas. Marianne. Never underestimate the power of a casual acquaintance. When I was in college, I attended a junior college first, and I had kind of good grades, and. I made it to what they called Phi Theta Kappa. And in junior college, that's kind of like Phi Beta Kappa. Anybody here with Phi Beta Kappa? Good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. So I made it to Phi Theta Kappa. And because I was in Phi Theta Kappa, I won a trip, one week trip to Washington, DC, American University with fellow Phi Theta Kappa kids. So we got to go for a week to American University, kids from all over the United States. It was a great opportunity. We get there, and no roommates assigned. I didn't know anybody. I was from New Jersey. And the only thing was 
you couldn't room with a boy. Now, this was in the 70s. Woodstock had already happened. And I'm thinking, no free love? What's happening around here? So there's a girl next to me, and Nancy from Minnesota. We start talking, and if eh, what the heck? We'll be roommates. So we're roommates, and the first thing you had to do was go to a mixer. Now, for any millennials, a mixer, <laughs> it's kind of like a blender, kind of. You take a whole bunch of college kids and a lot of alcohol. And we drank at 18 back then, so yeah, a whole lot of alcohol. You have a whole bunch of college students, big room, loud music, push the button, and everybody dances as wildly as they can. So we dress to the nines, and we go down to this mixer. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna show Nancy, she's from Minnesota, I'm from New Jersey. I'm gonna show her some moves. <laughs> I get on the floor, and I'm doing my moves. And she's watching, and then I look at Nancy. And there are guys dancing all around Nancy, not me. So Nancy's got the moves from Minnesota, and it was a wonderful night. We had a great time. We tripped the light fantastic into the early hours of the morning. We go back to the room, sound asleep, and I wake up the next morning. We're a little hungover. I wake up, and I look over. Underneath Nancy's bed is a leg, <laughs> a human leg. So I roll over and I think, I must be dreaming. And I go, no, there's a human leg under Nancy's bed. So I wake her up, Nancy, Nancy, there's a leg under your bed. And she says, yeah. She goes back to sleep, no, Nancy, there's a leg under your bed. She said, I know, it's mine. Well, I learned in that moment that I was born with two left feet. Nancy was born without a left leg. So now, when I watch Dancing with the Stars, I think to myself, with all of those contestants, there will never be one that has a leg up on my casual acquaintance, Nancy. Uh, Martha Clark. Hi, how are you? Um, this is only my second mosquito slam, so the first one I think I held on to the mic the whole time and didn't know I wasn't supposed to. So, um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm Irish, and this is a very live, very true story that's currently still ongoing. Um, and it was interesting to hear some of the, con the, the stories earlier, because I kind of thought it was going to be like loads of hippie roommates that were like in their 20s telling all their college stories, so it was really interesting to hear the wide variety and especially the European theme. Whoever that guy is in, in Italy, I, I almost did that too when I lived there. Um, but anyway, I, I, I live in Provincetown and I'm an astrologer and I kind of ended up in Provincetown by chance last summer. I came down to help run a guest house and stayed. So I have the distinction of being what you call a wash ashore and a townie and a year rounder. <laughs> so I kind of need three badges for that. Um, and it's very interesting being in Provincetown for the summer because with my accent, a lot of the places that were closed in the winter don't know that I'm a townie and I get treated like a tourist, so I get to see like all the angles. But anyway, um, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> but anyway, um, 
Last November, um, I met this woman in a cafe, and she was writing away in my journal because I write, you know, every morning. And she said, "You know, um, are you a writer?" And I kind of thought, "Ah, sure. Well, I'll tell her I am because I am." So I said I was, and then she said, um, "I'm looking for a roommate." And I kind of went, "Okay, I'm interested." And there's an important distinction, because in Ireland, we don't really use the word roommate. And if we do, it means somebody you're sharing a room with, not a house with or an apartment. So it's quite, quite a big distinction. So anyway, um, the following week, she was going to have a look at the house. And I went up and looked at it with her. And I, the rent was reasonable. And I thought, that's grand. That's fine. And then I moved in in Thanksgiving. And there was a bit of confusion two days before moving in, because we'd kind of talked through everything because I've shared it with a couple of people since I got divorced about 12 years ago in Ireland, and a lot of the time it didn't work out very well. So I was reluctant, but at the same time, it was a year-round position, and it was, you know, worth, worth kind of going for, and the rent was reasonable. So anyway, I moved in, and then a couple of days later, because I moved in around Thanksgiving, and it turned out she had all her friends coming and going and coming and going, and it turned out she had a partner that I knew nothing about, and the partner was there, like, for on and off for 10 days. Um, and I didn't know she was gay and I have no issue with that but suddenly like there was all these lesbians coming and going and coming and going and bringing cakes and bringing biscuits and bringing wine and bringing this and bringing that and bringing their dogs and sleeping on the couch and this was like all in the first 10 days and I kind of went it'll be grand it'll be grand it'll be fine so anyway um, because of all the toing and because I know that Thanksgiving is you know it's, it's your huge um, holiday here so anyway, a couple of days, but 10 days after I moved in, like I got the receipt for what I owed and suddenly there was a deposit listed and I was going, we never talked about a deposit. And I thought, well, I better shut up and pay it. So I did. So luckily I got receipts for everything. Now the next couple of months weren't too bad, you know, because we were sharing supposedly half the house and I was paying half the rent and half the bills. Um, and then the stop and shop strike actually started bringing things to a head because I didn't have enough room in the kitchen to cook because she'd basically moved in before me and all her stuff was there and vast quantities of food everywhere. And like we were both we were both kind of coming and going and doing our own thing. I was in Boston a lot and I was away maybe one one week a month and then she was away for a couple of weeks. So as I said, the stop and shop strike brought things to a head. I kind of went, Jesus, like better check on what you have in the fridge. And I was looking, you know, I had plenty of food to, to keep me going because I don't have a car. So, you know, and if you live a little bit outside of Provincetown, that does actually matter. So anyway, um, I asked for a bit more space in the kitchen and she condescended to give me like an extra shelf on like two cupboards while she still had 10 cupboards. And then I kind of said, I need to start doing something about this because the summer's coming in and she's had a hand, you know, couple of visitors over the winter and I wouldn't be surprised if there might be a lot of visitors coming in the summer because she had mentioned that her partner was coming over for a couple of weeks. So I did a lot of research as to what a couple of weeks is because a couple in Ireland is two, <laughs> right? <laughs> I did a lot of research. I talked to like 16 of my friends. Um, and then the stop and shop strike happened and I kind of went, well, I need more space and she hadn't given me more space. So I started clearing and sorting and doing things and I started doing an inventory as you do, because in Ireland, when you move in somewhere, you do an inventory of like, what was, what's there before you move in. It's not like here where you move in and there's just the bare bones and you bring all your own possessions in. So she came home one night and she was going nuts because I was moving things around and moving her vast quantity of excess possessions down to the um, basement and doing my inventory so that I wouldn't be accused of stealing anything whatsoever. And then she announces that her partner's coming on the 30th of June for six weeks and that she'll rearrange all the kitchen because she's a chef. So that's the moment at which I knew this was not going to work and it was going to get worse and worse. 
So I was due to go to New York on a business trip for a week, and it was my first ever time in New York. And when you're planning to travel anywhere in the States, I think Americans think you come over on a plane and you figure how everything works out within a month, and it doesn't work like that, folks, you know? So um, it took a lot of time to plan the trip anyway. So before I went, there was a bit of a misunderstanding about that particular rent check, and the rent and the utilities bill was more than normal. And I transferred money to the wrong account. And because things were going wrong, I didn't want to leave cash instead because she was going to be away two days before I left. So I left what you call like a backup check with a note saying, and then a text saying like, don't cash it unless you really need it or unless there's a problem with the other one. So I went off to New York and I left her like a letter, very specific, well-written, thoughtful, measured letter about the things we needed to talk about when I came back. <laughs> so... <laughs> Two hours into my bus trip to New York, text, we're not compatible, you need to move by the end of the month. So anyway, I came back from New York and we met uh, two days later, an hour and a half later, nothing was sorted and she said she was going to give me notice to quit and I kind of thought like, what's that, never heard of being a tenant at will. How much more time do I have? Okay. Um, <laughs> this could go on to midnight folks, but anyway, I'll keep it short. Um, so anyway, she went, to cut it all short, she went down the legal road, and I can tell you now, I probably know more about landlord-tenant law than anybody else in this room or almost anybody else on the Cape, because even though my name wasn't on the lease, I quickly figured out I actually had a lot of rights. So I was lucky enough to find somewhere else to move to in September, but basically over the summer, her partner moved in lock, stock and barrel. We had anything up to like three or four people coming and going that took over the whole kitchen. She took me to court to have me evicted, even though I'm leaving anyway. <laughs> that was last Wednesday. I've ended up writing a very bad play about it called Letters to Saturn. I performed it in the Barnstable Theatre Club last, last week, and they were very understanding about how bad it was, because I'm still in the situation. So she's still intimidating and threatening me and harassing me to within an inch of my life, and it's actually pretty shit, to be honest with you. Because uh, I can prove she stole money from me. I can point, and the interesting thing is when we actually got a copy of the lease, um, the deposit was $1,000 and she charged me 750 <laughs> So I'll end it by saying um, that even if your name isn't on the lease, you've got a hell of a lot of rights under Massachusetts law. And what I've learned during the last four and a half months is unfortunately these stories are kind of fairly common. But what I've learned in the last two or three weeks is very often... It's the tenants that are not doing things the way they should be, even though like whatever you read on Facebook might leave, lead you to think that it's actually about, that it's all about like the landlords. And that hasn't been what the stories I've seen have told me. Because basically this woman, the lease apparently, it, it forbids us from running our businesses from home. So I was doing my astrology business from home for a while, but because I'm now in the commons, I've moved it all up there. Uh, but she's merrily running like three businesses from home as well and getting away with it. So it's a long four and a half weeks till I move. Um, and I'm telling you, being an astrologer helped a lot because I knew what was happening. <laughs> but knowing what's happening doesn't mean it makes it any easier because it doesn't. It just can't, you think it gives you like a little bit more information and it does and it has helped enormously. So once in a while I stand back and see like all the good things that have come out of it because I'm surrounded by friends who, God bless them, are all inundated with holiday visitors and they're all saying, I'm really sorry for your troubles, but no, you can't stay with me because <laughs> we visitors meet more visitors. So anyway, um, thank you very much for listening and um, thank you.
Okay, one of the first to sign up, but the last to go, Roy. <laughs> so yes, I am Roy, uh, Mike D's roommate, so I'm not the worst roommate because I'm his roommate. Uh, our other roommate, Seth, is here just to show you what, what loyalty looks like, not real loyalty, which is, I'll talk about in a second. Text me a little bit earlier. It's really hard to imagine you going after the high Spanish girl taking a shit on the floor. Uh, and so, but I will share what I learned from my roommates about real loyalty, which is something you can only find out about after one o'clock in the morning at Tommy's House of Pizza. Uh, because, you know, you go through life and you make friends with people and then you find some people who, you know, despite Barcelona stories, by the way, there's an entire genre of Mike D stories that our kids ask us to tell, like, tell us about the time that he went to the Chinese restaurant and asked them if in China, forks come with instructions and kids tape them to their fingers with rubber bands or, you know, <laughs> et cetera. Um, but these are guys who, you know, love each other so much that, you know, they play poker and then get custom poker chips made. They get t-shirts made and then one of them starts a t-shirt company. And, and, um, and one of the last things we did together our senior year was we put on a play. And, you know, we bonded with each other. It was a mediocre production with occasionally funny moments. Uh, and one of the guys who was in this play was a guy named Sankit. And he helped us manage the play. And he wasn't one of our roommates. Um, and so you would think that, you know, we roommates, we take care of each other. But Sankit became one of the guys. And I had a special bond with him because I know him since high school. And he was the kind of guy, you know, everybody loved him. He applied to college, didn't get in anywhere. But all 74 kids in his, I think it was 74, something like that, in his senior class wrote a letter to every school that rejected him and said, you guys have made a horrible mistake. Ends up coming with us to college. I thought, you know, I thought we'd end up maybe being roommates together. I kind of welched on the deal on that. And so Sankit wasn't one of our roommates. And so I felt a little bit guilty. But then um, we go out and we're ready to have a great time. And... Uh, celebrate this play that we've all just put on. We go into Tommy's House of Pizza, and Tommy's House of Pizza is a, um, is a, it's you know, it's a college town pizza place. It's a mess. It's the kind of place where they don't know if you're paying them or they're paying you. There's a counter. There's pizza flying. Mike D's putting down two quarters, which is the exact change you got if you got two slices of pizza. Taking his own two quarters, pretending it was change, and asking for the two slices of pizza. And then you know, there's some big jockey guy, which you know, none of us really are. And you know, he's wearing the lacrosse shirt or something like that, and a big you know hat. And he gets his pizza and he turns around and bumps right into Sankit, and you know, his pizza goes splat right there. There is a triangle right to the side of Sankit's, Sankit's crotch. And Sankit's a little guy, not very intimidating, but this guy was very big. And he looks at Sankit and he says, dude, I paid $2 for this pizza. And then all of a sudden, like, you know that feeling you get in a bar where there's about to be a fight and everybody just kind of gets quiet and sort of, you know. And, and Sankit, who, by the way, He's like a federal judge or something like that now, incredibly accomplished guy. One of his best talents is he knows like how to swear, like nobody you have ever seen in your life. And this little kid looks up at him and he goes, yeah, I paid 60 bucks for these pants, motherfucker. <laughs> and then, then I learned the meaning of true loyalty because this kid who I'd been friends with in high school, I'd welched on a deal to live with him. He, he's then one of the friends with my friends. All of a sudden, it was like the whisper campaign begins, and I hear somebody going, hey, they're messing with Sankit, they're messing with Sankit, they're messing with Sankit. Before I know it, 12 nerdy kids are standing behind the one nerdy kid, and this, this jock is not messing with any of us. And so he bugged off, 
It was, it was a true night to learn. You take care of your own. Uh, the coda to the story is, if you ever go out clubbing in Boston and there's a place with a black light, don't wear khaki pants that have been soiled by a triangle of oily pizza because it will glow in the dark. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. <laughs> <laughs>